Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I am Wujahat Ali. And I am very excited to be bringing on one of our fellow nerd Avengers from the Mary Trump show, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, who is a writer at Slate and host of the podcast Amicus um, and a a fellow nerd who just, you know, makes us, the rest of us, not feel as crazy, (laughs) right? Like, that's what you do, Dahlia. You make us feel not that crazy uh, about the world around us falling apart. But Waj, you do the proper introduction of our friend. Well, since Dahlia is smarter than us, when she says the stuff that I say, it makes me feel better about myself. And when she writes it, I'm like, see, see, Dahlia said it. So I'm not that crazy. Uh, Dahlia is a lawyer. She's a writer. She's a journalist. She's currently a contributing editor at Newsweek. And she's a senior editor at Slate, where she comes out with the gems uh, every week. And and Dahlia, there's so much to talk about with the immense... uh, a blitzkrieg of news coming out of Trump's corruption uh, and, and the need for accountability. But I, I did want to start with this one really important news item that came out on Monday. New York Times broke the story. And my fear was, by the time we get to Wednesday, it'll be out of the news loop. And I was correct. But thank God you wrote about it. It's the news that this you know, conservative mastermind, this kingmaker by the name of Leonard Leo, has obtained one6 billion, that's with my pinky in my mouth with a B, billion dollars uh, through something called the Marble Freedom Trust to further his conservative agenda. Why should we be utterly terrified by this bombshell news that everyone is no longer talking about? So so first I have to... Um say what a treat it is to be with the both of you. And Danielle, to the extent it offers any solace in the world, my now teenage sons used to go around their kindergarten saying, my mom is the queen of the nerds. So like oh, not one second did I have any like coolness currency. They were so little and still <laughs> so aware of my just fundamental <laughs> dorky, dorky nature. So like, let's all just sit and bask in the nerdiness. Um, and, that I, was, and I should mention to people that right now there is a very fierce nerd off happening yes, between yes. Uh, myself, 
uh, Joyce uh, and uh, a few other folks, and Dahlia just threw <laughs> threw it in the ring, flexed with that story. Nerd royalty, Love it. am I? Um, so this is actually, Waj, I'm glad that you led with this because I think it is exactly the 50th biggest story this week, and it should be in the top five. Um, and essentially, it's just this guy, Leonard Leo, who... If you live in sort of the corridors of the conservative legal movement and the Federalist Society, then his name is very familiar to you, but otherwise you've never heard of the guy. And I, I think it is fair to say, and I think we say this in the piece, I wrote the piece uh, with Rick Hassan uh, on Wednesday. I wrote the piece with Rick Hadson on Tuesday, actually. Uh, and I think it's fair to say he it, it is his America and we all just live in it. He has mm. almost single-handedly shaped the courts in uh, the image of what the conservative legal movement wants. And there's two pieces of this that are alarming. One is, as you kind of noted, this is a just ridiculous transfer of a huge amount of money. And it goes through, you know, one donor who gets a huge tax break and then it goes to Ireland and then it comes back and then it's in this kind of shell corporation that nobody knows uh, what it is that the Marble Freedom Trust does. Um, and it's money that is going to be poured into, there's no question about this, both shaping the Supreme Court and one of the things that we flagged in the article, also shaping uh, state courts, races that used to be kind of anodyne, boring, vanilla races that are now becoming multi-million dollar races for state Supreme Courts. And Leonard Leo has also had uh, a finger in, you know, Wisconsin Supreme Court elections and other states. So this is these are the courts that are going to determine democracy. And those are entities that are now very, very much being designed by somebody who's not super interested in democracy the way the three of us think of it. And so, you know, Leonard Leo, in a sense, he built it. And what he built was a system that led us to Shelby County, right, to voter suppression. He built a system that brought us to Citizens United, right, unlimited dark money in politics. He built a system that has really whittled away uh, the rights of minorities to vote in a whole bunch of different cases, from Brnovich to uh, the independent state legislature doctrine that's coming to the court next year. And having built those doctrines, he's now seating judges who are going to make sure that they are the law. And I don't know how to explain more crisply what it is mm. to have a person who's in control of not just the federal, but as I said, the state judiciary, who has unlimited funds to make sure that he can effectuate that those judges get their seats and then continue to shrink the vote, continue to put on a thumb, a thumb on the scale for polluters, continue uh, to harm the environment, and continue to make it harder and harder for minority will to be for majority will to be exercised in the country. So he's kind of built the machine and now is benefiting from it. And that same dark money that he opened the spigot in Citizens United is the dark money that he is now collecting and spending again. You, you know, one of the questions that I have, because there are like 85 that are bursting <laughs> in my mind right now, uh, Dahlia, is, is, is this. Like you said at the at the beginning, um, 
Leonard Leo is somebody who people who are in the legal sphere and legal world know including Democrats, right? One of the issues that I have, and as as Waj knows and anybody that listens to me knows, is the fact that Republicans have always made clear where, they're, um, where they see the ability and the cracks in our democracy to be able to use a crowbar to open it up and to flood our court systems with, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world, with the Amy Coney Barrett's of the world, with these people who have a very sterilized uh, white supremacist view, anti-democratic view of this country. And so my question to you is, where the hell is our Leonard Leo? Why the hell is it always us sitting and writing brilliant pieces that are that are bringing attention to where attention and spotlights were never placed in the first place? Right. Because in order for Leonard Leo to exist. Right. And for you, you mentioned court cases that go back, you know, um, to the early 90s. Right. That we're that we're looking at. Where was the attention from Democrats, from our circle of people to bring the attention and say, if we allow these people to come in, they will never be gone because they'll be sitting on the bench for 20, 30, 40, 50 generations, right? And destroy our country. I mean, Danielle, I think that you are speaking both to and for an entire swath of uh, the political left that was shocked by Dobbs this year, right? I mean, overwhelmingly, and you all know this better than I do, the response was, how the freaking hell did this happen? And if you've been watching the courts over the last, as you say, several decades, it's amply clear how this happened. This happened in plain sight. And so I think there's Mm -hmm. two pieces of it. One is what you just correctly identified, which is I think that the left was asleep at the switch on the courts for decades, right? This goes back to the the Powell memo that first, you know, that that justice before he became Justice Powell wrote a memo sort of saying, oh, it's sort of cheap and easy to buy the courts. We should be doing that. And it really goes on through, you know, the Koch brothers. It goes on through the advent of the Federalist Society and the, the incredibly, like credit where it's due, right. brilliant, brilliant project to seed, you know, the the law clerks and to groom and reward mm. young law students and to get them onto the bench and have them be at age 27, 35, already on a rocket ship to the Supreme Court. And you're quite right about the other half, which is that by the time I think Democrats woke up and said, where's our Fed sock? And they tried to build the American Constitution Society, which is just, as you kind of note, just not in any way a comparator. But I think that the real deep, deep issue is that progressives, I think, just went on screensave sometime around 1971 (laughs) and convinced themselves that the court was theirs and that it was still the Warren court. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We just convinced ourselves because we got Obergefell, because, right, we got marriage equality. Marriage equality. 
And yep. we got yep. whole women's health, we, right? We got a big win on abortion. And then we convinced ourselves that was not hap- that what was happening was not happening, which is that we were losing steadily. And the best evidence, and it's totally depressing, and I'm sorry, is that going into the 2016 election, there were four octogenarians and an empty seat on the Supreme Court. They had refused to give not just a vote, but even courtesy meetings to Mitch McConnell. People like Ted Cruz and John McCain were out on the stump campaigning that if Hillary Clinton won that election, they would hold the seat open for four years or eight years. They were happy with that. Democrats running for Senate, crickets, nothing. You would never Mm -hmm. have known that this existential threat to the courts was looming. And I take no joy in saying this. I know you have both noted it. You kind of reap what you sow. And all these years of just kind of smugly telling ourselves that we had the courts when we had actually lost the courts to Nixon. And it was never the Warren court again. We had a good run for a couple of years there, but we just failed to message it, to spend money on it or to prioritize it. And maybe the last thing I would say, and this is really very depressing, is it turns out it's really cheap to buy a Supreme Court street seat. And it's really, really cheap, I warn you, to buy a state Supreme Court seat. And so we're spending money on these huge issue initiatives. And they're spending money on just saying, I can pick off a state Supreme Court seat with like a couple of ads and a couple million dollars. And and that's the world we now live in. It's not a happy answer, Danielle, but I think it is entirely a self-own of uh, a, a lot, a lot of people who thought that, and we've talked about this, the three of us before, but that the law and the rule of law just enforced and executed itself. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions. Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's, someone said something recently, which it, it, just, it, it was so painful to read, is that liberals think from year to year, 
Conservatives think in decades. Yep. And you have to tip your hat to the super villain plot that they hatched, you know, back in the day leading to, you know, the post Roe decision. Oh, okay. We'll wait and we'll just pack the courts and we we don't have the majority. We don't need the majority. We don't need Congress. We'll just get the judges to do our will and we'll have a judicial coup. And I think we also forget that it was a conservative court that gave us Roe, right? The swing vote was a conservative judge. And I'm sitting here, you know, and I understand this, but you, you, you oftentimes hear like the school, the prison pipeline. And you, what you just described is like the school, the Supreme Court pipeline that Come the conservatives on. have created. Can you break this down? Because you, you threw out, you know, Leonard Leo, Federalist Society. Most people don't get it. Can you explain how they groom talent from college, how they pick it? how they vet it, and how they send it to the Supreme Court. First, may I just throw out a just thank you to whoever the small child is who's wailing in the background. That, that was is... my Nuseba. I'm so sorry. No, I thought that was going to be subtle. I, but I'm that. totally... I'm... She was so disgusted. She was so disgusted by this news. She's disgusted Leonard by Leonard, 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 Leonard. She's, yeah. she's, she's disgusted. I, one other thing, just before I answer you, Waj, because it's the right question, but I think in addition to not thinking across decades, I think the left doesn't think across issues. And so I think that we say, like, as long as I get what I want for unions, or as long as I get what I want for the environment, or as long as I get what I want for LGBTQ rights. So we're not just that we're thinking in two short terms, but we're siloed across issues. Yep. And I think those are, are the two- Are you saying we need to be intersectional? Is that what you're yep. saying, Dolly? What a, what a novel concept. <laughs> I mean, it's so radical to say that any of these wins, and like, you know who should have learned this, by the way, with all due respect, was Barack Obama, right? Like that you can pass the ACA, and you can get the contraception mandate and you can just keep losing in the courts. And, you know, I, I think it's it's a lesson that's painful in the rearview mirror. Uh, on the other point, I guess I would just say this. The Federalist Society does a bunch of things. And, you know, we call it bootstrapping in the article because they hold themselves out as a debate society, right? They initially said that they were building an organization that was going to, this is going to sound familiar, kind of respond to the hegemonic control of the left um, in legal education. And so they just wanted to sort of surface conservative ideas. And that's how they held themselves out. But Leonard Leo is fantastically good at two things. One is raising money, which he did by the fistful. And the other is just creating this pipeline you're describing, which is identifying in first year of law school, the young kind of superstar conservative thinkers, and then making sure they have the right clerkships, making sure they have the right summer jobs, making sure that when they graduate from you know, their clerkships, they're vaulted into whatever the next obvious opportunity is. Look, it's not an accident that John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett all worked on Bush v. Gore, right? Like that is just a, a, a very, very effective machine to create what will be baby Supreme Court judges. And by the way, they all clerked for Supreme Court justices before, right? So this didn't used to happen. It was not kind of weaponized that by second year of law school, you were on a trajectory to just keep succeeding up. 
And then you get hired by these feeder judges. And then the feeder judges send you to the Supreme Court. And then you're Brett Kavanaugh. And then you're Amy Coney Barrett, right? Who'd only been on an appeals court for two years. So I think that like, again, credit where it's due, if you create that kind of machine and it's really lean and successful and you pour money into, you guys may recall the attack ads that suggested that Merrick Garland was soft on guns. Dude never had a Second Amendment opinion. He was like one of an en banc court that, you know, they 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 spent so much money trying to quash any possibility of him being seated with this just fabricated story that he didn't support gun rights. So it's kind of the same thing that you see unloosed in all of politics, right? Big money just drowning out merit, drowning out truth. And Leonard Leo has just been supercharged good at that. And maybe just the very last point on this is that one of the reasons he stepped away from senior leadership at Federalist Society was to do what is basically vote suppression, like to do uh, efforts to set aside votes. So he has a finger in sort of every piece of what is most pathological that's going on right now. But he also has this like army of judicial mini-me's who are doing willing to do things like, you know, what we saw yesterday in Texas, which is, oh, you know, you can't uh, force doctors to perform uh, abortion abortions because it violates state sovereignty and dignity. Those are those are Trump judges and we're going to live under their, you know, thumb for decades, decades to come. That's all Leonard Leo and that's big money. You know, so since you've painted such a rosy picture of our future, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, <laughs> no, uh, people come here for the truth. Um, here, here's the question that I have, though. Um, because you've signaled in the ways in which Democrats have had a breakdown in their messaging, a breakdown in their pipeline building, because the things that we said post Obama, right, which was where is where is everybody else? Where is the pipeline that is coming behind Barack Obama that isn't just looking at the presidency, but is looking at the courts, is looking at agencies, is looking in industry? You know, what we are setting ourselves up for, what or what that screensaver mentality has set us up for um, is, you know, is the crumbling of our democracy, but generations of authoritarianism. And I'm wondering if you see any opportunity in this breakdown for Democrats, progressives, the hard the hard left to actually harden. Right. To actually not just believe that voting alone is going to save us, because I think that this has been the problem. We just tell people that all they need to do is go to the polls, but we don't tell them why. Right. We say, if you care about abortion, go and vote. Or if you care about, like you said, if you care about, you know, voter uh, voter suppression, go to the polls. But we don't connect the dots. Right. And say very clearly how this is all feeding in and why most of the rights that we all enjoy didn't come from policy and collaboration in the Senate. Right. Or come from the, the president's desk. It came through the court system. And this is what Republicans have always known and have seen. So they created this plan. And I'm wondering, you know, sometimes when there are breakdowns, there are opportunities for breakthroughs. And I want to see, you know, do you get a sense that we are now at the point of crisis, compounded crises, that there is an opportunity, not tomorrow, but in forethought to be able to fight back in a way um, that, that doesn't have us lose everything. 
So Danielle, I feel like nobody has been clearer than you and maybe than the two of you on this point that is that there are a lot of people who are coming around to realize that vote suppression is a thing. Whereas if you were a person of color trying to vote in America ever, it is not news to you, right? I, Catherine mm. Frankie at Columbia Law School made this point to me when SB8 happened this year. And I was freaking out, you know, one tenth of the childbearing population no longer has access to abortion in the state of Texas. And her argument, and again, you all know this, is that if you were a person of color in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana, that was a paper right from the day Roe v. Wade was signed into law. And partly thanks to the Hyde Amendment, but partly because we have illusions, right, about everybody can just drive to the local library and drop their ballot off. And that's not how people vote. That's how like wealthy white people vote. Right. And, you know, that you can go and collect your daughter at college and bring her to New York and get uh, an abortion. That's how you can do it if you're privileged. Right. So I think the number one most important breakthrough, and this sounds like it's just words and I don't think it's just words, is that people are awake And Waj has a really nice piece from yesterday just talking about embracing the word woke. But I think that part of looking around and saying, holy hell, there are people who have been standing in line in Georgia for 30 years. And now we all have to stand in line. And like, that's not a bad thing to just look around and realize that a lot of the things that we thought were fundamental rights and freedoms and liberties were on paper always. Mm. And that goes to the second part of like, I think the breakthrough, which is the system is operating exactly as it was designed, right? That's why we have an electoral college. That's why we have a malapportioned Senate. That's why we have a Supreme Court that is constituted of people who were seated by presidents who lost by many, many votes, the majority vote, right? So this is a minoritarian rule system that was constructed to be precisely that Mm. by the framers. And there are a lot of people now who are looking around and being like, well, but the electoral college sucks then. Or like, it makes no sense that people in Wyoming get two senators and so do people in California. And those moments of looking at the what you're describing as these fissures or cracks and breaks in the system mm-hmm. and a acknowledging that they now apply to you and yep. your kids and that b they were designed to do precisely what they are currently doing those are not trivial recognitions and i really really think that if i see a silver lining to the past couple of years. It's that an awful lot of people, and this is very much like what we saw around police violence and Black Lives Matter, that this is not other people's problem. This is everyone's problem. And that solves, by the way, both the silo problem we started with and Waj's problem of thinking in long term, right? Those are not nothings. Now, I do think that fundamentally the solution to losing the courts, probably for a generation, was court expansion and term limits and all the things that the Biden commission just kind of batted away. And that is a problem of we're 10 years behind. We should have been having this conversation the day Anthony Kennedy Mm. stepped down. But I Mm -hmm. do think that there's really, really an opportunity for people to say exactly where you started, Danielle, which is, I thought my vote mattered. 
I thought if the polling shows that everybody, including Republicans, doesn't think that a woman should have to bleed out or get sepsis before she can get emergency medical treatment, and nobody thinks that that's the case, and it seems that my vote may not remedy that, then we can talk about these big structural things. And it's not, just to go back to, again, where we started, as fun and interesting as talking about marriage equality, fun and interesting as talking about, you know, other big wins that we focused on. These are boring, mechanical systems problems, but they are systems problems that have produced exactly the outcome those systems were designed to do. And so for me, like if we can look around and say, holy crap, if we don't nip this like independent state legislature thing in the bud, and by there the way, go. it's going to be heard <laughs> this fall and it's going to- That's al- what I wanted to ask you about. It's going mean, to allow I mean, states I'm, to set aside election results. Like, and I, you know, you literally read, led right to my point because my follow-up question to all of this was everything that you just said comes to a head with the more V. Harper. And just like this Leonard Leo news that we're leading with, uh, people have forgotten about Morvey Harper. You've written about it. I've written about it. I, we've tried to bring it up on this show, but no one's talking about it. And the future of our democracy is at stake with this Supreme Court case, with these six justices, these six, my words, right-wing extremists in black robes, who will have the power to give 60% of our state legislatures, which are controlled by Republicans, so that's 30 out of 50, it will give them the power to nullify the popular vote and say, you know what? We think there is election fraud. And because we think there is election fraud, eh, the slate of electors that went for Biden in 2024, we reject it. And we're going to put in our Republican electors who, lo and behold, Danielle, and Dahlia mm-hmm. will go for Donald Trump or DeSantis. Can you can you explain the danger? Can you just explain Morvey Harper for our listeners and how that is, in my opinion, one of the most pivotal Supreme Court cases coming up that will decide whether or not we have a democracy. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, feel free to disagree with me, Dolly. No, you're not at all hyperbolic. And we've talked about this case before. I think it is existential. And I, I think it's existential in a term, by the way, that is taking up voting rights and other contexts and affirmative action. And, you know, this is going to be a huge term. And I still think that you're quite right, that more is you know, it's it's everything. And you've explained it really well. It's essentially. And by the way, this goes back to Leonard Leo, right? Because this is a quote unquote doctrine that exists nowhere. It is hatched in the underground lab of like the very same think tanks, the very same conservative legal movement that peels off a position in Bush v. Gore that did not get a majority of votes, right? This is a concurrence in Bush v. Gore that gets three votes. And now suddenly it's being cited as though it's the law of Bush v. Gore, a case that was not supposed to be cited ever again, by the way. And it's being flung around as though there is some, you know, etched into amber notion that state legislatures have complete control over how elections happen and that there is no place for federal or state courts uh, to intervene. And as you said, if that is in fact what the Supreme Court rules, we've seen 
four of the current sitting judges have at least in dicta in various places signaled that they would approve such a doctrine becoming law. We don't know what Amy Coney Barrett would say. But as you've said, this was essentially a version of the crackpot theory that John Eastman was pushing to set aside the 2020 election. And so there's no crisper way to say it than this is an idea that was so ridiculous that lawyers were disciplined for advancing it to try to unseat Biden that is now going to through the back door and and as we said, you know, burnished and loved up by the conservative legal movement to suggest that this is a real idea that has years of credibility and it will now plopped at the lap of the same Supreme Court that, you know, just set aside uh, abortion rights and crippled the, uh, I'm sorry, and and, and and hobbled the ability of the EPA, uh, that Supreme Court is now going to decide. And you're quite right. You know, all you need is Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and some of those swing states. Um, and have, do those have Republican state legislators, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, that's all you need. And you will have put into effect what Donald Trump was trying to persuade Brad Raffensperger to do in Georgia. So it's terrible. And I, it's the coup. It's, it's the, basically the coup. It's the, I, that's what I, I, I literally was just going to say that. It's that, the coup that, in that, black that is, I mean, we, yep. Yeah, it's the it's the coup in black robes. You one of you or the both of you need to write that piece. Um, the coup in black robes. And because the reality is, is that we I, I believe that in this country, when we saw the Capitol building defaced, when we saw our leaders running and hiding under tables and blockading doors, we said, so long as, you know, we're able to clean this up, then our democracy will be fine. So long as that day, right, was done, then the coup is over. And what we continue to see is that it has ramped up. And so, Dahlia, my, my, my question for you here is, you know, everything that you have laid out, everything that you have been writing about, that you have been talking about signals only one thing to me, which is that our democracy is not in danger. It is done. And so I'm wondering, you know, what do you see? What do you envision as we head into, you know, we're, we're, we're just 70 some odd days until midterm elections as we head into the presidential, like what this country looks like, because I'm, I, I, I am, I, I'm not as optimistic as, as, as Waj and, and, you know, and some of our other like fellow, uh, Avengers, I, I just am not, I'm a realist and I want people to prepare for what is, what they're going to be met with. So can you, can you tell, tell us and tell the audience, like, what does, what does after midterms look like? What does the road to inauguration day, 20, January 2025, look like? So, so I'm, <laughs> I am certainly not an optimist. And I think because I've been focused on the democracy piece and the voting piece for so long, It's hard to be optimistic, Danielle, for exactly the reason you just set forth, which is it seems to me that the Supreme Court, the only reason they didn't take an election case in 2020 is because it's like Rudy Giuliani, you know, and Sidney Powell making dumb arguments that even for them was intolerable. 
I think that once it's really fancy white shoe lawyers, you know, look who's defending Lindsey Graham's completely addled notion of why he doesn't have to testify. It's Don McGahn, right? <laughs> that was that was uh, White House counsel. So once it's respectable white shoe lawyers who can write a coherent brief and make arguments that sound as though they're principled. And again, this is really arcane doctrine, right? So people will be like, oh, maybe I guess there is such a thing as a state legislature doctrine, an independent state legislature doctrine. And you're right. That's, it's much more dangerous when it's smart lawyers deftly making clever palatable arguments than when it's, you know, Four Seasons landscaping Rudy Giuliani. And, and that is the part that scares me. I don't say it's done for a couple of reasons. One is, I think when we talked about people waking up, we talked about how I think a lot of Democrats realize that state races and state houses are absolutely essential. And we, in much the same way that we ignored all the other cases because we were winning, you know, marriage equality, I think we... or kind of avoided all the other races, the state and local races. And we're seeing this at the school boards now, right? Um, we just ceded that ground to the other side. And so I think one of the things that I think is happening, and we were seeing it, you know, in in some of the, the you know, in a New York contest this week, but we're seeing it also, I think, in the polling uh, that suggests that people are freaking furious and they're voting around Dobbs, they're voting on the environment, they're voting on vote suppression, and that, as you said, I think really correctly. The answer can't just be just go out and vote, Danielle, right? Mm -hmm. That's not enough. Yep. Yep. But I think that people looking around and saying, holy hell, democracy is sliding through our fingers because I didn't vote in the state, you know, uh, 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 deputy governor, whatever, deputy lieutenant governor, whatever, whatever race, and that we didn't vote for those things. And those people, by the way, all of those state officials are the ones who were the bulwark against the last coup, right? And some of them were Republicans, and a lot of those folks are getting pushed out of office. Those are the people that I think that we have to look to now and say, if we're not pouring money and attention into state and local races in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, um, then we're going to swing and miss again. And so I think you know, voting is the problem. Like you said that from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 voting doesn't fix things, but not voting <laughs> really, really doesn't fix really things. Really doesn't fix things. And so I think <laughs> kind of helping folks understand this, you know, if we are seeing states look around and say, you know, six-week ban isn't enough. We're going to have a personhood amendment, right? Like, oh, now we realize that, you know, 10-year-old rape victims are going to have to fly to a different state and we don't care. Or, mm. you know, what we just heard out of Michigan, which is it'll be good for small children to bond with their babies. Or out of Florida, right, that a, that a child who's too, quote, unquote, immature to get a judicial bypass is mature enough to have a baby. And you're seeing state one after another, see how that polls and double down, do more, say that life begins at conception. Then if people aren't furious and they're not willing to just take over their state houses and their school boards and like yep. every piece of this, 
then I agree. I don't think it's over, Danielle. But I think that if this doesn't focus the mind, I don't know what does. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And I feel like that is a hopeful note for us. The fact that there has been pushback, the fact that that has galvanized people, the fact that abortion and abortion rights is a kitchen table issue, ladies Thank and gentlemen. You. This podcast, Democracy Ish, according to the latest poll, the number one issue of voters, even ahead of the economy, is. The protection and defense of democracy. So maybe Danielle and I were onto something. And the fact that Republicans are trying so hard and doubling down, like you said, Dahlia, but they're losing. They're losing on abortion, even in Kansas. So that does give us hope. And you have another article because you're so prolific. I recommend people read that. It's called Why Won't Anti-Abortion Activists Stop? Uh, that came out this week. But we're going to have you on again in October because you have a book coming out. I want to give uh, you an opportunity real quick to give a shout out for that book so people can pre-order it. And where can people find you and your work? You're very kind. The book um, is called Lady Justice. It's published by Penguin Press, and it's essentially about how a bunch of really amazing women lawyers beat back the worst of Trumpism. And the last third of the book, you dorks will be so happy to hear, is all about voting. It's about gerrymandering and vote suppression and getting out the vote. And I really, really think that if we can sort of absolutely laser focus on these structural democracy issues and fix things. Everything we've talked about today is fixable, whether it's the Electoral Count Act, right. whether it's the malapportioned Senate, every one of these things is fixable and there's stuff in the works to fix it. And that's where we have to really, really focus our attention. So it's Penguin Press. Uh, pub date is September 20th. Thank you for giving it a shout out. And I really, really do think, and this is, I guess, the thesis of the book, that I think if women lash themselves to the rule of law, not that I in any way think that men have a lesser role in that, but I think that um, if women can really lash themselves to how important the rule of law is, they could change the world tomorrow. And that mm. note, I want to end on. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajah Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, there is a country left.